0: It's just less and less likely that we'll actually be able to establish any sort of security. No matter how hard you actually work, you're not going to get the thing that you want because nobody does, because it's not real.
1: What is going down? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden-Smith. And I am Troy Polidori. And this week we have a special guest on. I love when we have special guests on. Sarah Jaffe is going to be joining us. Uh, We're going to be talking about, uh, I guess it's a follow-up to a couple episodes on the article that she wrote on burnout that we discussed, that was two episodes ago. And then also she's going to be talking a little bit about some stuff from her new book, which I guess the article was also inspired by. So there is a common theme here if you couldn't pick up on that already. Um, So you can check out her new book, which is called Work Won't Love You Back. There's going to be a link in the show notes where you can go to her website and where you can find out how to get uh, this awesome new book. She also has a book from a few years ago called Necessary Trouble. She is a journalist. She writes constantly. For whom? Like, Descent and new republic and who in else these she times, for yeah yeah in these times all kinds of things so uh, definitely also give her a follow on um twitter and wherever else she might be you can check out her website again link in the show notes but she's going to talk with us for a little bit about all things related to work and life and society and happiness and time and etc cetera, etc cetera. what else troy to give people a little teaser
2: uh, something about uh, actualizing communism via art centers, community art centers. <laughs> yes, yeah. that's my favorite
1: thing in the world. That's my favorite <laughs> thing. So uh, definitely stick around in a couple of minutes for that. Um, is there any housekeeping that we need to take care of before we jump into that, Troy?
2: Yes, yeah, so we want to address the patrons really quick. Um, or yeah. first, for those unfamiliar, if you're not a patron, you can go to patreon.com/owlsatdawn and get access to a bunch of goodies there by signing up to become a patron. We have a couple announcements we want to talk about. Um, first, we do want to mention, as we've mentioned in the last few previous episodes, I think, that we owe the patrons a patron-sponsored book uh, or artic- patron-sponsored episode. Um, and so we're going to do that on uh, Capitalism as Religion from both Ben and Agamben. Uh, we're going to do that next unless something crazy happens. So expect that after or in the next episode. And then even, even bigger announcements um, Austin, we've decided to start a Discord channel for the patrons of alza at Dawn, right?
1: of friggin lutely I'm not really a big Discord user, but I've used it a few times with Wisecrack, and uh, it seems like a cool little space where everyone can come together and chat shit, so... Uh, That's kind of what we're going to do. It's going to replace the monthly newsletter. One, uh, I just completely slacked on maintaining the monthly newsletter, so apologies to patrons for that. Um, But two, it just seems like something that could be a little bit more free-flowing and common. And so what we'll do is... Um, You know, at least after every episode, you know, one of us will jump in there and be like, "Oh, do you have any thoughts or questions, or did anything interesting come up in the episode?" And we'll try to kind of like direct the conversation that way. But we'll also just like open it up for people that want to bullshit with each other and talk with each other. We get so many freaking interesting emails from like former religious people, or people who studied philosophy, or people who are political activists, or people that are um, dealing with existential crises, or whatever. And um, we, it seems kind of awesome if we can try to connect some people and and get people to talk. Uh, In a a communal sense So um, we're going to be replacing the monthly newsletter And uh, replacing it with the Discord channel Which uh, by the time this episode is live Is going to be up Uh, If you already are a patron You should check your notifications Because we'll put up a little announcement on Patreon.com If you're not a patron and you want access to this shit Go to Patreon.com slash Owls at Dawn And you can get the goods Yeah, I'm excited about this Discord thing I mean, I preferred uh, the records they released in the
2: 80s Um, But I've heard that they're still pretty legit now. So,
1: yeah. Always with the jokes, Troy. You can't take anything seriously, can you? Dude, nothing's more serious than Discord Records, man.
2: It's like the least least funny uh, part of music culture that exists in the world.
1: Moving on, we have to get into the shitty minute. This is where one of us gets to rant and rave about whatever it is that is pissing us off this week or in this lifetime or whatever. So Troy, it's your turn. What is your shitty minute? So, Austin, do you know who Phoebe Bridgers is? Oh, yes, of course. Oh, you've you spoken. Know her? You have spoken about her before. Oh, have I? Yeah, you've recommended her stuff. Oh, I didn't realize. Yeah. Um
2: So, yeah, I ha- I have an affinity for her. She um I think of her as, like, my my little sister. So she kind of has that, like, little sister-y personality, like, sarcastic and funny and one of the dudes kind of thing, right? But she's also... Like, her music's, you know, it's really, like, dark indie folk. um, Dark in the sense of, like, uh, thematically, right? Um, Lots of talk about uh, death and depression and stuff like that. Uh, She even has a song on her latest album that's about um, how about dealing with kind of like fan stalkers, um, people who sort of come up to you after the show and just talk about all the horrible details of their life and how they're commiserate when they listen to your music, and it just kind of kills you. And yeah. then she talks about how in the song she would do, she would have done that to Elliot Smith if he was still alive, so she kind of gets mm-hmm.
3: it.
2: So it's that kind of stuff, right? And also I have uh, a bit of a connection because the, um, the sort of arts high school she went to is on the cal state la campus um so i used to pass by it all the time um and it's, it's a legit cool place and look at these kids who get to play music all day and hang out on the cal state la campus like what a cool high school life that would have been dude <laughs> um anyway i don't think she's like the the greatest thing in in folk music or in art generally but i i really enjoy her and think she's a breath of sort of fresh air when it comes to uh, uh personality not taking oneself too seriously but also um, pushing the boundaries of, um, of the kind of popular, uh, indie folk, um, especially amongst, you know, people in the early twenties, so a lot of that stuff can be pretty cringy and terrible recently. She had kind of a big break where she was on SNL and she kind of, did you hear oh. about this at all? No, she destroyed a guitar. Um, during the closing song that she plays. So she's got a closing, she's got a song that closes her last album and at the end of it, she, it goes this big crescendo and then she kind of screams, does some like metal screams at the end of it as it's crescendoing. Uh, and it's not abrasive at all. Like it's, it's it's totally like turned down on the record to not be too offensive to people. Right. Um, uh, but it still has that feature, right? And so she does it, she does the screaming part live on SNL. She backs away from the mic so it's not like full metal, Right. Um, mm. and then destroys a the guitar. And it's it's so funny because she's destroying the guitar, but she's like a, f- probably a five foot two, hundred and ten pound little girl, so it's not very badass looking. <laughs> she's like mm. struggling to do it, right? Um mm-hmm. and she got criticized quite a bit for doing this. Um, even so much that uh was it David Crosby came out and kind of um I can't remember exactly what he said, but he was he was critical of her and kind of dismissive um, of her. Uh, and David Crosby's a dick, so who really cares? But then some yeah, of I was the just gonna weirdest, say he's a dick. Yeah, yeah. Some of the weirdest critiques were like it was a sign of privilege for her to destroy an expensive guitar on stage. That's the only thing you can really do when you're when you are so privileged as to not care about this expensive guitar, and most people couldn't do this. So um, it was a it was weird kind of like quasi leftist woke critique right it's just so weird that these two criticisms like one was the kind of old school rockers who were like we did this back in the 60s and 70s and we're cool you're just imitating us and are lame because you're young and you don't have you're not risking anything when you do this it's not cool when you do this and then the weird kind of woke critique which is i mean I, i it's hard for me to even address it as serious since it's just so it's so ridiculous but and I've seen a lot of people kind of on the internet talking about how, like, those are bad critiques for obvious reasons. Um, people have been, you know, destroying guitars for a long time. It's part of rock. It's constitutive of rock and roll to destroy your instruments. Like, that's just part of it, right? Um, and also, and she probably not- got the
1: guitar for fucking free, okay? Like,
2: <laughs> she yeah, probably sponsored
1: I- by, I don't know, what, whatever the manufacturer was, Gibson, Fender, whatever. She probably got the guitar for free, so... <laughs> And there's
2: no way she, like, did it off the cuff, like, totally got SNL on board with the whole thing, right? There's no way they're going to let her do that otherwise. Um, and the whole woke critique is so weird because it's just, I mean, first of all, it's good for the guitar industry when people destroy guitars because they're suffering and need to make more and sell more guitars. <laughs> so <laughs> that's, like, the woke thing should be. Destroy guitars if you can afford to so you can buy a new one and keep the guitar industry afloat. Um. But then also, like, so what? That she can destroy guitars and other people can't. Like, it's this weird, like, categorical imperative thing where it's like, if not everybody can do it, nobody can, which is obviously a terrible interpretation of the categorical imperative, first of all. But either way, it's just it's such a weird um, form of like uh, woke critique when somebody does a thing that you can't do, so they're wrong for doing it or whatever, and you're just ignoring the social conditions underneath that. To make that um, possible in the first place but i just can't stand the fact that people can't see how like fun and cringe it was like if you haven't seen it go on youtube and watch it's on youtube go and watch okay. it happen the, the response to this should have been that was ridiculous <laughs> she's like laughing the whole time while she's doing it because she can tell she's not doing it very well in terms of, like, it's not badass like Kirk Cobain does it, and you're like, dude, this guy is going to go back and shoot himself in the face when this is <laughs> over. He gives no fucks. When you watch Kurt Cobain destroy his guitars, that's how you feel. You feel like, oh my God, Dave Grohl almost died when he threw his guitar 20 feet in the air, and it almost came down on Dave Grohl back on the drums or whatever. That's that's one kind of experience, right? This was not that. This was like a ridiculous, fun Kind of cringy but still self effacing kind of moment. Right. And that's like, that's a good thing. Just like, let yes. it go. Don't worry so much about everything. Not everything has to be fucking fun. ideology.
1: Yeah, come on. Jesus Christ. Did you see her response? <laughs> I'm only hearing about this. I didn't know anything about this. So I just went to Twitter and I typed in Phoebe Bridger's guitar. Did you see her response to David Crosby? She called him a little bitch. <laughs> <laughs> so good
2: it was great yeah she's wonderful
1: uh, my god
2: oh that i, I is will so say wonderful. she is a great follow on twitter um is she okay i'm gonna yeah follow. i actually I, I saw her live at the wiltern a couple of years ago um playing with uh uh lucy dacus and julian baker it was like the like the indie folk girl boss trio or whatever um and she had a bunch of shirts for sale at her merch booth and i guess there's this thing where she has like like a uh, like white hair basically like super super light blonde hair like it looks mm-hmm. like Tar- like targaryens from game of thrones right um and so people would like uh, post pictures to her or send pictures to her on twitter and there are replies of people who had similarly colored hair, hair and ask like is this phoebe bridgers and so she had a bunch of shirts with random pictures of celebrities with her hair photoshopped on them and it's, and the shirt would just say is this Phoebe Bridgers. She had Danny DeVito and Benedict Cumberbatch which was wonderful.
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh um, Jesus. Yeah, so okay, I just well, I, I just want people I to just gave her a follow. Like
2: seriously. You know what, what I was mean? was I just want people to take things like seriously. Like we get we give people these critical tools, you know? Yes. Here's some critical here's some like, you know, dime store critical theory for you. Now go and like attack them. Be angry.
1: World. Yes.
2: Yeah, just don't do that <laughs> you shit, dude. go and
1: attack the world. I know. I know, They're man. like adventurers. Well, you, know what? you know,
2: they're like cavaliers. Oh, I'm the fourth son of some noble. I'm never going to get anything in my life. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to go die out in the forest somewhere trying to make a name for myself. It's like that kind of attitude. When it's like, I'm going to adventure for adventure's sake by using my critical theory tools on Twitter to talk about how someone's doing something wrong. Nah, dude. Just go do your own thing. Like, leave that shit alone.
1: Yeah, I know it's weird. I always straddle that line because I'm like sometimes, oh yes, it is the ruthless critique of everything. Um, yes, everything <laughs> around us. We must we must critique it all. Come on, we must. Um, and then other times I'm like, yeah, but goddammit, some of it's just fun. Like let's just kind of chill a little bit and enjoy positive passions when we when we can experience them.
2: So, I don't well, know. What's the thing right when you when you're saying critique like that, the ruthless critique of everything, that's critique in the broad sense of analyze, which is great. Which means you can also analyze positive things. Like when I when I said that it was this kind of cringy but self effacing moment, mm. that that's a kind of analysis, right? It's just it's just an analysis that has like a it doesn't have that um, sort of critical distance that makes you smug. But instead it's like I'm seeing it from this person's perspective and from the people around them who are their friends who are playing with them on this show. Right. Like I, I'm seeing this as a communal moment. That's just kind of funny and, and cringy and whatever. And that's an analysis. And it's fine. Not all critique has to be um, sort of everything is bad and dangerous and wrong. And I'm going to unearth that for everybody because everyone else is ignorant of this fact. Right. right. I mean, not to over philosophicism.
1: Kind of like yeah, not, not to over philosophize it yet. Yeah, it's, it's also a dogmatism, right? Because it's really ultimately issuing from a very fixed and rigid perspective that is then setting the frame by which the phenomenon is being judged or critiqued. And that's what kind of leads to this, the, the kind of negative distancing from it because it doesn't fit within whatever that paradigm is that's issuing the um, perspective in the first place, right? So that's when it leads to a, or it issues from a kind of dogmatic position. Whereas what you're talking about is an empathic, uh, an empathic analysis, right? One that's like, "Oh, I can see it from their perspective. They're having fun. They're doing it their things." I mean, that's a, a very different, much more open and connective way of doing analysis, rather than um, the kind of dogmatic form.
2: Yeah, and it's fun. Like, it's fun to engage in that. It sucks to always be negative all the time in your in your critical analysis, right? It's boring. Yeah. It's lazy, and it's not fun. And you kind of hate yourself. So don't do that, man. Have
1: some fun. It's with boring. Fun. It's lazy. It's not fun, and you're gonna miss things right because you're going to be suppressive rather than kind of being affirmative and open to the possibility of things that you might not be able to have experienced had you not um, made the connection in the first place so connect people is what i'm trying to say that is my um, guru mantra for this episode connect everybody
2: austin at your
1: next conference
2: talk can you destroy your laptop after you're done giving the talk (laughs)
1: Bro, I, did I ever tell you I, – I don't want to out this academic because I don't know if it's true. It might not be a true story, but there was a, a Deleuze scholar – who was talking about life and he like took out a knife or something like that and like cut his hand and wanted to just make like a little incision on his hand to show blood, but he cut like an artery or a vein or whatever the fuck it was and his <laughs> hand like started like bleeding profusely. And so they had to like rush him to the emergency room or something like that. I don't know if this is true or not, but there there's a lot of crazy stories that came out of UK 1990s philosophy uh, groups. So that's all I'll say. But, yeah, that's pretty – people doing some punk rock shit. Yeah, so. you know
2: who's, who's in the most punk rock shit at conference talks that I can remember? is David mm. Chalmers. I don't remember the story right now exactly, so maybe I'll come back to it at a future point. But he pulled some shit on, um, on Dan Dennett and some others that <laughs> talk about consciousness where he <laughs> pretended that Dan Dennett was a zombie in the conference <laughs> talk. Something like that. And I think he, he like, he, he put, he like, um, glued some like small mechanical parts together. I think it was like a, like a blow dryer or something and some other parts together to make it a zombie in, or like a, a consciousness inspector. And then like went to Dan Dennett and pressed it and then nothing happened. <laughs> and then he went to someone else who thinks that there's, um, uh, you know a qualia believer and then it and it went ding or whatever. <laughs> so, oh, that's so that's good. some that's some punk rock shit that I appreciate. You have to have more of that stuff at conference at conferences. It's just a shame that only David Chalmers can do that because he's a fucking, you know, boss.
1: Yeah, well, and then and then there's another person. This is actually a different person that was doing another Deleuze. It's Deleuzeans in the continental world. Uh, was doing another presentation on Deleuze and was talking about the issue of, like, becoming animal in Deleuze and Guatari. And in the middle of his paper, started, like, just making animal noises and grunting. And then I guess by the end of it was on the ground, like, on all fours, like, actually, like, making just animal noises and grunting. And it was like, that was the presentation. So... That's the dada that, shit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's the dada shit. Like that, that happens. So yeah, maybe I will. Maybe I'll just fucking I'll smash my laptop and then I'll be like, I'm fucking out of here. Thank you, you University like, of Vermont. <laughs> yeah, there has to be a, like what would be the
2: moment where you could do that, like where you really answer a Q and A question and just shut it the fuck down. Then just like yeah. chuck your laptop against the uh, against the like the uh, the screen pulled down behind you and then just walk off. Yeah.
1: Stupid question. Fuck you. I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jesus. All right. Why don't we uh, move on from Guitar Smashing and Phoebe Bridgers? I guess everybody should follow her on Twitter if she's a good Twitter follow. Um, and then let's jump into this discussion with Sarah Jaffe. Yeah? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, yeah. All right, sweet. So as we said at the top of the episode, we have a guest joining us this week, Sarah. Now, is it Jaffe? We actually talked it is about Jaffe, Yeah, It is Jaffe. Okay. We thought that's what it was, and Troy and I have listened to Belabored, but for some reason we couldn't remember uh, how to pronounce the last name, but we went with it anyway, Sorry. so I'm glad we got it right. Um, you're
0: good. You're good.
1: Okay. So Sarah Jaffe is joining remember. us. All the way from her busy uh, book tour uh, that she has been going on digitally from the comforts of her house there in uh, in New York City, right? Is that what?
0: Yeah, what... my my book tour from like one side of this desk to the other. I, I move, <laughs> sometimes I move the chair over like a couple inches, and then you're like, oh, all right, new yeah. new angle on my freaking video camera.
1: That's right. <laughs> Everyone's gonna become very uh, accustomed to the. Um, what is that, the wardrobe that you have behind you? and that is that a painting? It's actually a f-
3: – yeah. Is that a
1: fan? I, I'm actually fan? subletting
0: the house, so it's like kind of somebody else's <laughs> stuff, um, <laughs> except for Emma and Rosa behind me who are mine. They come with me.
1: Wonderful. Wonderful, wonderful. Um, and if people uh, listened to a couple episodes, they'll remember that we talked about Sarah's article um, on burnout, which basically framed the discussion that we – Uh, Jumped into for that episode And Sarah talks a lot about labor issues And she has a new book out That is called Work Won't Love You Back Um, And there was also a book a few years ago Called Necessary Trouble Um, So go out and get all of those goodies And so we figured we'd have Sarah on Since we were talking about her For an hour So we figured (laughs) how about we have her on And she can actually speak for herself So thank you so much for coming on To talk with us about All things wonderful in the world of work
0: Mm, are there things wonderful in the world of work? I don't know. Unclear. You tell us. You're the expert. Unclear. You tell us. All right.
1: Um. So, <laughs> yeah. So so you were just saying before we started recording that you're formulating new theories on burnout. Do you have anything new that you can tell us about this phenomenon that has been labeled Burnout.
0: You know how they say that, like, some people think that the camera steals your soul?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm starting
0: to feel that, like, Zoom is stealing a little piece of my soul every time I'm on a video
1: call. Oh, Jesus.
0: It's so weird, though, right? Because, like, if you're, if you're used to doing talks and things and performances in front of an audience, you're, like, yeah. used to having feedback, right? To having, like, people to feed off of in some way or another. yeah. And right now, I'm just, like, I get nothing. You're sort mm-hmm. of, like, projecting out at, like, a presumed audience somewhere. And it, it's yeah. just really, 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 like, it feels much more tiring than actually doing things in person. So I'm just, like.
1: You know, it's so interesting. So two things. One, there's there's a reason why, like, both Troy and I teach uh, at universities, at least part-time. Mm-hmm. And I'm teaching a, a set of courses right now for this this. Uh, like extension school called the Melbourne School of Continental Philosophy and. Uh, Whenever I tell people about that I'm teaching, they're like, oh, you know, are are the students cameras on? And I'm like, some of them have their cameras on. I was like, but we don't force them to have their cameras on, obviously. And then especially with this extension school that I'm teaching, the majority of them don't. And I kind of trust that they're all there. And I'm reading from a PowerPoint anyway, so I wouldn't be able to see them. So it really is like (laughs) I'm speaking into the digital void, right? Like I'm just like literally on the other end, except for when we have a little bit of discussion or if. Like my screen freezes and I have to hear somebody pipe in and be like, oh, hey, just to let you know, Austin, we can't hear you. You know, like other than that, I don't get anything back. There is no feedback. And it's so funny because we're talking about this kind of humorously, but actually Troy and I, one of the things that we really tried to, to nut out with regards to the issue of burnout was that there's no reciprocity. Right, Mm -hmm. And that this is one of the fundamental issues. And you're talking about this now is that you're not getting anything back. There's no like affective or Mm -hmm. libidinal or emotional connection that you're actually getting. Like an embodied connection that you're getting something back. And it's just outward expression, expression, output, output, output. output, Which another way of putting that is just labor, 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 give, give, give. But there's nothing that we're getting in return. And it's only exacerbated with the digital medium.
0: Yeah, it's really it's really telling how, like, physical proximity really does feel necessary. Like, the first time last, God, whatever the hell, Mark, it was a year ago. It was almost, it's almost March. Oh, yeah. Jesus. Yeah. The first time that I, I got on, like, a video call with a friend of mine who, like, already lives in England, so, like, we're used to having some distance, but, like, during lockdown, we, like, did a video call instead of, like, a phone chat, like we normally would. And I just, like, kept, like, reaching to try to touch him <laughs> because he's the kind of friend where we, like, you know, mm-hmm. like, yeah, and like I was just like, I, we have to go back to the phone. I can't do this video thing with you because I'm just like trying to put my hand mm. on you and I can't. Mm. And it was like 10 times more frustrating to be just like, your face is here, but it's not real mm. um, than just talking on the phone and like having a voice in my ear. Like I'm used to that. I'm, I'm a child of the 90s, you know, before mm-hmm. we had video calls, I'm, I'm used to being on the phone. So there is something like very strange about only interacting with like two-dimensional humans.
2: Hmm. Yeah, I think I've read that something like, what, 70, 80% of communication is gonna be bodily and in, within physical proximity, the cues that you give, right? And so yeah. we're constantly trying to read each other's bodily expressions. And since yeah. you can't really do that very well on Zoom, it's basically like you're running on a hamster wheel it's not going fast enough. And so you're just tiring <laughs> yourself out constantly, psychologically, yes, you're exhausting exactly. yourself, yeah. trying to interpret things that aren't even there.
0: No, and you're like trying
2: to make.
0: You try to like make eye contact, but you can't really make eye contact because you have to look into the camera. But then, if I'm looking into the camera, that I'm not looking at you, and like it's just all absolutely exhausting. Um, Mm. Yeah, so it does seem like the one good thing that
2: might come out of this is the fact that there's a whole generation, two generations, of people, especially in academia, who are gonna remember this and then realize we never want to go back. See yeah. Them all online. Although, did you Academic did you guys culture. see that
1: Financial Times article that was making the rounds? The paragraph that was like, you know, some some scholars attribute uh, the many deaths from the Black Plague to a shift in labor relations, but hopefully that doesn't happen with the current <laughs> pandemic. <laughs> it was like you know it was like yeah it was like it was like yeah because because more people died then laborers were given greater bargaining power because they had more power to, uh, to bargain with the workers, workers right so they're yeah. like yeah but hopefully but then the tagline was hopefully that doesn't like no such shifts occur now with the current pandemic or something like that
0: <laughs> you know it's really been like a banner year for just like capitalists saying what they really mean I know. Um, it's it's really funny although like now today like Rush Limbaugh died and everybody is just like oh but you can't like point out that like he had a regular segment on his show where he celebrated the deaths of other people you can't do the same thing though oh my god yes yeah rush limbaugh like had a whole series where um anytime he found out like a prominent gay person had died of aids he
1: would like fucking celebrate it Oh Um, Jesus!
0: and yeah but we're we're supposed to be like oh so sad rush limbaugh's dead nah man
1: well, I, this is the first no. time I'm hearing it. I'm just waking up over here in Australia, so...
0: Congratulations, your Dad. Yeah, if I had one of those
1: buttons where I, we could push it and then, like, horns and, like, confetti would go off and stuff like that, that was me just doing it. That's what that noise was right there. So, sorry, Rose. You would
0: edit it in post. <laughs>
1: yeah, right. <laughs> we do need some drops on this podcast. It's something we're severely lacking. The only sound effect we ever put in was the little bit of the uh, smoking of a, a bubbler the one time. Uh, remember... <laughs> We had the little sound of uh, of the water bong uh, being hit, but that was the only sound effect we've really done that was fancy. Um, Troy, Troy since, yeah. since, uh, since we kind of like last chatted about burnout and now we actually can go to the sources, are there any questions that you wanted to bring up? I know there were some particular interesting angles that you found in Sarah's like yeah. solutions with regards to um, like working with people and, and stuff like that. Is there anything you wanted to bring up now that we could kind of delve into a little bit?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I was thinking this might come up organically, but I think one thing we certainly were talking about on the previous episode was the sort of haunting specter of alienation that permeates burnout. Just oh, yeah. definitionally, right? If you're burnt out, then that implies that's a, like a negative um, state to be in, right? You're burnt out of something. What that means you're somehow alienated from some positive expectation or some positive state you were previously in or whatever, right? Yeah. And that's that's tough right because people want to talk about these negative aspects but you're feeling in the moment so they have like a a phenomenal feel to them that we can all talk about but it's tough to talk about well what's the what's the positive aspect that we've lost um because then you're getting into some sort of positive theory no one wants to go into that realm since it's all you know spooky (laughs) and controversial right um and so when we're talking about burnout i wonder there's some sense in which you might think that burnout happens because one's alienated from some fantasy expectation yeah. that life's going to be incredibly meaningful, full of happiness and abundant pleasure, and when you don't get that, you're kind of a crying baby. Like that's one kind of polarizing <laughs> or one end of the of the pole, right? Um, not true entirely, but probably some aspect there is. That's the somewhat... Jim.
1: That's the Jim Jordan take on burnout. Is that... <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah, and then the other is, is something like um, there is no positive aspect whatsoever, and so burnout is itself mm. um, uh, not really a real thing. And so we need to like undergo some sort of, I don't know, like a subjective destitution or something to so the idea that we're burnt out and <laughs> we be zen enough and then we're fine and we can go back to work or whatever. Uh, and both those seem wrong. in important ways. No, because
0: both of them revolve around going back to work, right? Both of them are just (laughs) like ways to sort of reset your brain so you can go back to work. Um, Yeah, yeah, I mean, I I found it really interesting that the sort of history of this term was from research on caring workers, right? That it was from Mm -hmm. research on like doctors and nurses. People who are supposed to presume to sort of get some sort of intrinsic... Mm -hmm. Reward from their work right that it's not just a paycheck, but it's actually something that they you know find rewarding to help people and um, Yeah, and so like we can't sort of conceive of burnout in a job. You already know sucks, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That's sort of why it comes along at the period in history that it comes along when we're starting to think more about jobs that are intrinsically rewarding as opposed to just the other things that everybody does Um. So yeah, I, I find that really interesting, right? Because like, yeah, you can only sort of lose that sort of positive association with work or whatever it is the exact phrasing is um, if you had it. Mm. So if you don't have it to begin with, you can get tired, you can be stressed, you could be all those things. But this idea that like burnout is sort of an, an affliction of losing that positive motivation for your work.
1: This is why like the whole hustle culture, Insta Firefest shit kinda only exacerbates this problem, <laughs> right? The thank God it's Monday or um, you know the Fiverr ad that was like, you know, your diet is coffee and you don't eat breakfast or whatever the fuck. And it you was. only charge
0: five dollars for your services. And your yeah, labs.
1: and you <laughs> exploit like Filipino workers and things like that, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, like, yes. but all this, all this does is exacerbate this tendency because it's also like using the illusion that you should love it, right? And so there's this weird like emotional, even though like Troy was just saying there might be something. There's something problem with simply saying that this positive expectation about work is – it's not merely a fantasy, so it's not merely psychic. Um, But there is something about like the psycho – the psychosocial or whatever the fuck it is that that definitely bears on – um, this phenomenon of burnout as being kind of more intense now, because everyone now is also mm-hmm. beating themselves up because they're guilty, because they're not doing enough, because they're not right. loving it enough, because they're not they're not they're not hustling enough, or they're not living to the standard that they see they ought to. So there is something about a fantasy out there that is kind of like, I don't know, um, yeah. I don't know if it's the guilt, like I. I have like a a, a theology background, actually both Troy and I did, where we come out of like a religious background. And so for me, I'm always going to like, I feel like this is like some religious shit. Like I feel like (laughs) I feel like there's guilt, you know, there's like guilt here. There's something that's like telling me I'm bad and we're flagellating ourselves and saying, "Ooh, bad sinner, bad sinner, bad sinner. Because I don't love my job enough, or I don't love my exploitation enough. And I feel like that is like a layered, it's layered on top of the actual, you know. then material physical burnout. Yeah. What's up?
0: If I had known we were going to talk about theology, I would have sent you this um, article. Maybe you did read it, the Bethany Morton's article in the Capitalism Journal about um, Opus Dei and the Novara School, and this being like a, a sort of particular facet of neoliberalism that's sort of under I'll send it to you in email. Please do, yeah. Yeah. Um, and Bethany Morton, who I know because she wrote a book on Walmart, um, she's a wonderful, wonderful, brilliant historian. And now her re- and her book was just was called To Serve God in Walmart, and it was about this mm. sort of um, Christian service ethic and the way that Walmart variously exploits that idea. Mm. And so, yeah, now her new research is on this kind of Catholic neoliberalism. And like, <laughs> I learned a whole bunch of things about Opus Dei and like self like literal self-flagellation. This is a thing. And the work ethic, that like Opus Dei is literally the work of God, right? That's like what right. the, the thing is named. I, I don't, off the top of my head, like, it's not a cult, Sarah. That's not nice. Um, <laughs> I'm too Jewish for this. <laughs> like, I'm really too Jewish for self-flagellation. Um, although, you know, part of my family's Catholic. So, but it was really fascinating. A friend of mine tagged me in it on Twitter and was just like, uh, you know, new labor of love. <laughs> it was like literally this paragraph. just yeah describing this guy like beating himself with a thing and like having some sort of thorn thing tied around their thigh i don't know it's real weird um and i was just like all right and that that it is like literally self-flagellation in order to make you work harder and i was like this is just way way too much (laughs) but it's a brilliant article it's really interesting because this has actually been like really influential um, apparently, mostly in like Spain and and uh, Latin America, the Spanish speaking countries in Latin America, but like super interesting. Yeah, and um, and that's
1: like the explicit version of it. But even the in... so, explicit version. Right, of right, it. and <laughs> but like the the. The kind of like psychical pressure that is put on, you know, I mean, people talk about it all the time, like I've got Catholic guilt, or if you're Protestant, it's like I've just got Christian guilt, or whatever. But that guilt is that you're never gonna fucking live up to the standard, and so you're always beating yourself up because you fall short of the glory of God. Is kind of the yes. the idea, and that that has just been kind of interpreted in secular terms, with you fall short of the glory of the market, or you fall short yeah. of the glory, yeah. of, you fall short of the glory of general equilibrium, or some shit like that, right? right. So it's like whatever we're always. Yeah, so there is some 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 process of self-flagellation that seems to kind of feed into uh, this tendency towards burnout.
0: Yeah, and I think, I mean, partly right now, too, it's it's becoming more common because, like, it's just less and less likely that we'll actually be able to establish any sort of security, right? That, like, no matter how hard mm-hmm. you actually work, you're not going to get the thing that you want because nobody does because it's not real. Mm. Um You know, that like this, you know, my whatever, like I can always beat myself up about not selling enough books. And that's like one thing. But like just in general, my industry is falling apart. Right. Mm -hmm. Journalism is dying. Um, There was another, you know, private equity company bought another massive newspaper chain this week. So there we go. That goes down the tubes. Wow. just the idea that I might get at some point, I'm 40 years old, get like a stable, secure job in journalism that lasts more than five years is insane. It's just mm. not going to happen. But you somehow keep working as if maybe at some point magically somebody will find a functional business model for journalism and, and start hiring again. Like, mm. um, Yeah. You know, it's it's just not – going to happen, but you can always sort of, there's just enough hope that it might happen still. Because you see like a couple of people, you know, like Beyonce exists, so somebody must succeed, right? Right. Um, Or like, you know, the five people who get columns at the New York Times exist. So there is like that thing to aim for that like a vanishingly small number of people get access to. But we can all dream about it
2: and follow them on Instagram.
1: Mm, That's right, and it's Yeah, go ahead, Troy.
2: The exact mirrored phenomenon happens in academics, right? I was just going to say yeah. In philosophy, where both Austin and I are, where the philosophy job market is just, it's the worst (sighs) job market you could possibly imagine. It's It's horrible. um, And so, yeah, unless you get your PhD at Harvard and then you schmooze everybody in town, then- Oh my
0: God, no, not even Harvard. I saw a thing this week that was like, less than half of Yale humanities PhDs get jobs now.
1: Jesus. Yeah, yeah it's Less than
0: half of Yale, man. Like, what the hell?
1: Fucking Rory yeah. Gilmore got fucked, man.
0: <laughs> was Rory <laughs> Gilmore a philosophy major?
1: No, she was, it was, it was journalism. <laughs> <laughs> See?
0: Oh, right, and then she immediately got to go interview Barack Obama. Fuck, That's right. But then, <laughs> but then she I didn't have Why do I remember the Gilmore girl so
1: well? Come on. Yeah, I'm obsessed <laughs> with this show a little bit, so.
0: Um. It's okay, it's okay. We we all have,
1: yeah, yeah have yeah, yeah.
0: Rory Gilmore memories.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, no, uh, it is. I was. Yeah, I, was I talking, It's just. I, I, I was talking. I was talking with uh, with my girl the other day, and she's a researcher in the medical sciences or in the health sciences, right? And so for her, she they they've got like money and shit, right? Yeah. So you know, they, I, I'm like, oh man, there she's, are jobs. Yeah, she's got a job and she's got a possibility. I'm like, but that's because all of the money is going towards STEM, you know, the science, technology, yeah. engineering, and math. Whereas if you're in the humanities, if you're in English, if you previously studied something like French poetry. That's literally just laughed at now, right? Yep. It's just something that doesn't exist yep. anymore. Even history, yep. political science, those departments are all kind of consolidating and so now what you yep. get are these like mishmashes of it's like philosophy, politics, and English and history department, you know? And yep. there's like seven people in the entire department and if you're a historian you also teach about like, I don't know, the history of philosophy and then that's all the courses that you offer. And if you're English then you also teach about, I don't know, journalism and you know it's like you have to like wear these multiple hats because totally consolidating and um, it's strange and so part of me wonders like okay so is this just us like bemoaning about some nostalgia that we had about when the university was great and white dudes could just easily get tenure super easy right is that is that what All i'm upset of our social about social
2: problems were solved back then so yeah, yeah, that's right no
0: i mean you know you could you could just become jerks and complain about you know now they let like one black woman into the academy and so that's why white men aren't getting jobs um uh, <laughs> But, I mean, but the reality of that, too, is that, like, the same thing that happened is that, like, as the jobs are finally opening up, whether it is, like, literally the Ford factory or the academy, when they're finally starting to, like, let a tiny, vanishingly small, again, number of people of color through, of women through in Mm -hmm. a lot of these places, right, that's happening at the same time as the jobs are just going away. So it's really easy to be, for, you know... People who are racist. Um, but we see this all the time, right? That they blame, like, oh, it's the affirmative action people that are the right. reason you can't, you didn't get into Yale or whatever. And, like, no, man, it's like the, the fact that there are, have always been a tiny number of places in this and then a tiny number of people who will move out. And now, you know, 70 something percent of, of academic jobs are done or academic classes are taught by adjuncts. Yep. And so. You know, they're just not replacing the, you know, whoever I was trying to name a famous philosophy professor and I get nothing, Judith Butler. Um right? that works. <laughs> like you're, that they're works. just they're just not gonna replace Judith Butler when she retires, right? Whether yeah. they replaced her with a straight man or another, you know, gender nonconforming queer woman, they're not gonna replace her with anything. They're gonna replace her with five adjuncts who that's each right. teach one class.
2: Yeah. And that's, that's the right. best case scenario. I can say I was at a an unnamed Cal State University at one point. And that university was known as having the greatest economic mobility of any uh, university, any college in the country. And so they're celebrated for that fact, right? Mm-hmm. And part of that image they try to cultivate is by basically threatening to close and never hire anybody except in particular departments that yeah. feed towards that economic mobility image, right? Mm-hmm. And so while it's obviously great that um, the school's helping with economic mobility, they're doing so by, in one meeting, the president telling the Uh, department chair of our philosophy department, we will never, ever hire someone in your department ever again so don't even talk about it. Hmm. Point blank to us. So yeah, yeah, there's. it it can be even more nefarious um, than we're even thinking about. It's not just replacing with adjuncts. It's basically just trying to close down these departments for good. And not just conservative reactionaries, right? The people who are supposed to be on the the good side of things. No, Mm. I mean,
0: like, STEM obsession was Obama's shit, right? We're going to teach everybody to code. Well, first of all, you haven't taught anybody to code and be like... (laughs) All that does is drive down the wages for the coding jobs, right? Mm-hmm. Like, coding uh. is not going to ba- maintain its existence as, like, the, you know, big, exciting Silicon Valley thing for that much longer, because more and more people are going to learn to code, and then that just means you're going to push that down. So, right, either you get, like, you're either you're trying for one of the tiny, impossible-to-get jobs in a handful of fields that actually seem appealing, or you do what everybody tells you to do, and you learn to fucking code, and then you're one of... 8 million coders who graduated that year who are now all going to be making $30,000 a year instead of 80.
1: Yeah, and 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 you know, mine and Troy's big like concern with this or at least my concern, I don't know if I can speak for Troy, but I think I can here, is that if you just have a generation of fucking coders, well then who's going to ask the important questions about like why things exist? I mean, and I don't want to sound super fucking wanky and like <laughs> Uh, ivory tower but it's like but who's gonna read the french poetry man that shit matters right who's gonna who's gonna like who's gonna write interesting books who's gonna create the art and i'm not saying that we don't need a proliferation of a variety of, of of social activities of course we do that's how any sort of society functions you know but not everybody can be the finger and not everybody can be the eye and not everybody can be buddy can be the the toe like i often say somebody needs to be the butt hair and i'm fine with being the butt hair you know and we need the butt hair on the body because it creates the whole organism so you know uh, i just i worry about like the homogeneity too of society and that it's all being created in the image of yeah. capital so these coders aren't just coders because they're somehow uh, amazingly uh, uh, amazingly able uh, able bodied people that can code in this wonderful way it's oh great right. they can be perfect inputs for the system to proliferate further that's that's the real issue
0: Well, yeah, and you get like, right, like even, you know, at a functional university, even if a bunch of people wanted to major in computer science, like, hopefully you would make them take some humanities courses so they can, like, read a book. Um, Right. God, I remember talking to, this was a while ago, but I was in um, State College, Pennsylvania, and I was um, for a political campaign. And I um, was talking to a guy who was also volunteering on the political campaign. And he was a PhD student in, I want to say, biology of some sort. Um, and he was saying that, like, the undergrads that he's teaching, like in the sciences, they can't write a coherent paper. But, like, half of being in the sciences is it turns out publishing your research.
1: <laughs> right.
0: You know, right. like, all of these papers that we're all trying to pretend we know how to read under during the pandemic when we're trying to, like, think we know what we are reading when we're reading, like, you know, epidemiology.
3: <laughs>
0: I get nothing. But, like, yeah. you know, they, they're they literally, like, couldn't put together three sentences. Yeah. And it's like, okay, even in the sciences, you need to learn how to read. You need right. to be able to communicate. Like, these are things that matter. Like. Part of the reason we're having such terrible public health guidance is nobody knows how to talk to each other about science. Like, <laughs> hmm. these things actually connect, also. Um, not to mention, you know, we could probably use some more ethicists in this moment. Yeah, um,
1: just that's what saying. I'm saying. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's
0: been a long ass time since I um, took whatever it was, Philosophy 103. But um, yeah, I feel like these are some questions we might want to be asking right now as, as we're being told that, you know, we got to reopen the economy and grandma's just going to have to die. Hmm. Um, well, and a lot so of this comes down to can,
1: to yeah. something that you focus on in your book, right, um, which is about the issue of time, that there needs to be like a new politics of time, right? And that the current economy is uh, is is like a perpetual motion machine. And because of mm-hmm. that, there is no possibility, as a friend of mine once said, there's no time for time. and yeah. um, And it seems that there does need to be some sort of like reclaiming of our time of not just leisure, but of our... Our, our capacities to be able to think our capacities of be able to create those yeah. types of things and and that seems to be like a, a fundamental issue that needs to be at the forefront of maybe any left or um, any sort of activist orientation is yeah. we need to have a politics of time as as like a bedrock yeah
0: yeah I mean the thing that we you know lose in this moment is I mean well everything but like <laughs> we've lost everything right now but like hmm. The way that we are expected to exist, like pandemic life, but even before pandemic life, is just like everything revolves around work. So Mm. you get your job, and that is going to determine where you live. You might have to move across the world for your job, like whatever it is. Um, And... That's just supposed to be the way it is, and that's the thing that keeps us going. And the more time that we lose, the like everything else is sort of fallen by the wayside. Whether that's like literal leisure time, or like time to be like a citizen, which is such a corny mm. way of saying this, but like Mm-mm. political participation is fucking exhausting. Mm. Why do we think that it's down in a lot of ways? Is like who has a damn time? Um, although I guess you know we did have. Record voter turnout in this last American election. So, like, you know, Donald Trump is good for something, I guess.
3: Yeah, but it um, but it's a weird
1: kind of time oh, because it's a time yeah. that is structured by certain media narratives and therefore certain digital demands, which I think, again, are all kind of
3: yeah.
1: tapped into this weird perpetual motion machine that is related to hustle culture that is part of burnout that is yeah. part of this like psychic fantasy so it's like a it's like a false time it's a time that is already married to the time of capital or to the time of yeah. do rather than the time of reflection rather than to the time that is that would be a productive manner of time so it's it's yeah. voting which is important uh, in a representational democracy but i think I think it's not, like, a real qualitative conception of time. No, you know? right, we're
0: not, like, we, we don't have time that's actually built for debate, right? We just have, yeah. like, you, you watch the TV and you shout at the TV, right? Like, Fox News or, or Rush Limbaugh <laughs> right. or whatever it is. But we don't right. actually have, like, spaces and cultures of, like, engagement that aren't, that are built into the structures of our life anymore, right? You go vote and that's supposed to be your contribution. Well, great. Um That's, you know, the things that are not work and are also not just like lying on the couch watching reruns of the Gilmore girls. Um, but Hmm. are other things we might do and ways we might like be engaged, you know, critically thinking humans are are just gone and instead you're just like on Facebook. I was talking to a friend yesterday who was saying that he was deleting like a bunch of social media for a month because he's just like I literally have like trained my brain not to deal with boredom for like a second. So I like get up to walk to the bathroom and I'm checking my phone. And I'm like, oh yeah. Like I'll like go into the other room to like refill my water and be like, wait, why didn't I bring my phone?
3: Mm.
0: And it's just like, why? What am I getting out of this phone? I mean, right now it is the only way that I talk to humans because I live alone during lockdown. But like Mm. that also almost makes it worse because then like my communication with my friends just feels like more work. (laughs) because I'm like Mm -hmm. oh if I communicate with my friends on the zoom and I communicate with work on the zoom I'm just like uh." Mm. but yeah like this bullshit that we fill our time with instead of like anything that might be
2: meaningful yeah this is a huge hobby horse for me and I think Austin too we've talked about it before boredom is actually super productive and (laughs) you know human evolutionary history is boredom leads towards creativity and production in new and innovative ways and the fact that I can't remember the last time I was bored and didn't know what I needed to do right now. Yeah. Um, that leads mm-hmm. to not only the stress and anxiety that comes from that and those negative affectations, but it leads to not being creative, not innovating and not coming up with new things in your life, let alone engaging in relationships in new ways that keep them you know, fresh and interesting. And the fe- this last year has just been the death knell of those things. And it's, it's worrisome to think about whether or not that stuff's going to come back naturally when yeah. we're all back to normal, even when that happens. Hmm.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's like we're bored, but we're just stuffing the time with shit. So, like, you know, I'm, I'm bored in that, like, I don't have a human around, but, like, I'm just watching a lot of television.
1: Hmm. It's, so it's bored that in the sense of, like,
2: nothing's like, meaningful, yeah, but not exactly. bored in the sense of, like, I'm engaged with my mind wandering it's that yeah i
1: I can never remember how to say it and i actually prefer both ways but it's that mark fisher quote that is basically like Mm -hmm. everything is boring but no one is bored or everyone is bored and nothing is boring i can never remember which one he says but but i think both of them are actually but both of them actually work right like everything is boring but no one's bored right like you go on the netflix they're all fucking boring everything is fucking boring right? But nevertheless, show. yeah, nevertheless, and they all have the same fucking posters and it's all the same like uh, style of story structure and all this other shit, but yeah. uh, we, we just keep fucking watching it. So we're not bored or everyone actually is bored, but everything is actually really exciting in the sense that it's all sensationalized yeah. and it's all, you know, pitched at the level of crazy affect, which is, you know, we can talk about in politics, well, right, we can talk yeah. about in art and everything, but, but we're all fucking bored because we're just like comatose.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's been interesting. A friend of mine, Adam Kotzko, is always talking about, like, the way that everything is just pitched at, like, the apocalyptic level for, in politics for the last, like, 20 years. And yet, like, it's mostly, other than maybe we could say Trump, like, it's mostly just been, like, tiny Mm. shifts between parties. Even as, like, the Republicans sort of get louder and squawk more, but, like... The policy differences just don't end up being that big and yet mm. every single time it's the most important election ever oh my god we're stopping the descent into fascism and like you just start to feel like the boy who cried wolf about the whole thing and you're just like shut up already mm. um because it's it's like the level of the discourse versus like the level of what will actually change mm. Is just yeah, ridiculous, I mean, right? Like is- it's yeah. Like what has changed about my life? Trump isn't president anymore. Great. <laughs> Have I gotten a fourteen hundred dollar check? I haven't even gotten the last six hundred dollar check. Come on, mm. man.
1: Yeah. Like uh, how many how many people were like the world is gonna fucking fall apart either when but second Biden's elected? Like I read this thread about some dude yeah. who has a brother in Texas who was like planning for the day that Biden was elected that like the apocalypse would be. Uh, uh, issued in or something yeah. like that but yeah. so many people have been kind of on the precipice of you know right. this kind of like apocalyptic expectation for right. so long and it's like well is passing the 15 dollar minimum wage is that what year we're anticipating is that the collapse of civilization is yeah. that the thing oh i mean because it was gay the $15 marriage.
0: minimum wage by 2025 <laughs> Yeah, right.
1: in the next right. few years <laughs> you know
0: like, um yeah. yeah like it's it's like the the people who are fucked are the same people who are always fucked right it's immigrants it's poor people. Yeah. It's trans people. It's queer people. It's kids. Kids are basically fucked. Um, right? Like, it's, it's... The fuckedness is going to have, like, a... Hopefully some changes around the edges. Like, Trump's sort of last-minute execution spree was pretty horrifying. Mm. Um, but, like, we're still in Afghanistan. That hasn't fucking changed. Guantanamo. I remember when Obama was going to close Guantanamo on the first day. Pfft, that's still open. A guy just died there who spent the last entire however many decades there. Mm. Yesterday died there, never been charged with anything. Like this shit just still keeps happening, even mm. though like we're having this debate about oh my god the future of civilization, and it's just like future of civilization is actually like we're fucked. We're still fucked. Mm. We're fucked. <laughs> we're fucked. Climate change. We're fucked. Um, you know, so like we're like not having the apocalyptic conversations we should be having. Like i I'm, you know, I'm about five hundred yards from the water over here in Brooklyn where I am. And like this apartment will be underwater in twenty five years.
1: Do you That's think just this reality. is? Do you think
0: like, yeah, we're not having th- that conversation? This this we're existential like dread, this
1: this fucking cosmic fear. Do you think that this is intensifying burnout? Because I can say, as someone who has taught uh, university for about the last ten years now, is that right? Eight years, something like that. So I've taught like first years, so you know, eighteen yeah. to twenty year olds primarily, and um, they're more anxious now than they were even just 10 years ago when I started. And it's like palpable. It's conscious. It's at the forefront of their thoughts. And I've been Mm -hmm. involved with some climate activism here in Sydney. And while the 16-year-olds that are leading these student climate marches are very – clear and passionate and and uh, amazing in so many ways the anxiety that they're dealing with is something that I didn't experience at that age like I had normal 16 year old bullshit you know like oh no I've got acne or something like that yeah, but like right but like uh Do I, have I, I a date wasn't for the prom? Yeah exactly but I wasn't worried that the fucking sea levels were going to wipe out my entire you know, well, culture Austin, or everything. You
2: and yeah. I had existential crises in college over our religion. Like, I mean, yeah, we have the privilege, well, you know, to no, that's good. Worry that's a good existential God. Yeah,
1: that's yeah. the kind of existential,
2: existential crisis you should. have. No, you know, <laughs> I had a weird, I mean. like,
0: existential angst about like the end of the world, but I was like twelve, so like, I don't know. That's the thing. But like, <laughs> I mean, I just I, I've been talking to like my therapist about this. is Very Jewish of me, right? I don't know, you know. Um, but like, <laughs> <laughs> I like about just like this year has been like, there's just like, you know, when your computer is running like a really big program and so everything else slows down. Yeah. And it's like COVID (laughs) is like the really big program that like my brain is dealing with at all times. And so I'm like, oh yeah, I'm just like low grade thinking about death all the time. Mm. That's just, and it's like not the forefront of my brain, but it's that big ass program running in the back that is like, we're in a pandemic, you could die. Um, And that's like, makes it harder to do everything else. Well,
1: and, and like, we don't no even wonder, get at the end to of the really the day I'm just like no. And we don't get to really think about it. We don't get to talk to friends about it. We don't get to cry and hug and talk to our family. Like, um, I don't know if I would call him a friend or um, somebody that I, can you call Twitter friends that you have, like DM conversations with friends? Some of them are friends. um, Ed Ed Rooksby just passed away. Yeah. He had been dealing with the long COVID, right? And um, I was talking with a friend and I was like, I haven't even, it hasn't even hit me because I was so busy and preparing for a class. And I I was like, I want to just like stop and like think about this like like this really fucking sucks like like I I wasn't friendly with the guy in in a really close sense but we had great conversations and um you know banter and he produced great work and I feel like he was somebody that should hurt me more that he passed away and it sucked but I didn't even have the time to really process it it was kind of like fuck he died okay now we move on to the thing that you got to do because the clock is ticking sort of thing. Right. And so right. when you th- that's one instance, not to mention the entire pandemic is killing millions of people around the world and yeah. like you said death yeah. is yeah. constantly in our brains. And then you have wars and then you have economic exploitation and then you have mass poverty, then you have uh literacy issues, then you have racial crimes. I mean all these things that that we're not able to like actually like say, okay, motherfuckers, we need to we need to sit with each other. In a community group or in a working group, and we need to fucking cry, hug each other, sing a song, read some fucking poetry, something, you know? Like, we don't have those opportunities that much. Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. we don't have time for this. Like, I was talking about this um, with Kathy Weeks in one of my book talks where we were just like, yeah, like – one of the things we need time for is to grieve, right? To actually, like, stop and just, like, let it hit us that, like, mm. this is terrible, and we're just being expected to, like, go on with life like it's normal. It's not fucking normal. It sucks. Mm. It's miserable. It's horrible. And we've just, like, normalized math's death and are just going about our days because, like, mm. what other choice do we have? We still have to work. We still have to eat, like.
1: The economy needs it's us. It's just,
0: yeah. Grandma's gotta die so we can reopen, like you know it's just uh, like mm. texas like big chunks of texas have no power right now and also a deep freeze and like that's uh. killing people because like a lot of apartments in a lot of parts of texas are not used to it being 40 degrees out mm. and they are not insulated for that shit and right. when the power grid just goes right the fuck you know um you got nothing and like what can I do? Nothing. I'm sitting in front of my computer retweeting Twitter threads about it. That's what I can do. Oh, you know.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yep.
0: it's just, yeah, like what, What? how can we like actually be human when the thing we have to do is just keep working?
3: Hmm. Hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, I know listeners are probably going to be like, dude, stop fucking talking about this already. But so I just finished, <laughs> I just finished doing um, a play. So here in in Australia, things are actually really <laughs> good relative to elsewhere in the world like in sydney we have like zero new cases and we we actually have live theater and we aren't in lockdowns and i know i'm sorry i know i'm sorry (laughs) i'm sorry (laughs) i know and and um and things have been very good for pretty much the duration like we had a little lockdown but it's life has been um i have i have experienced some survivor's guilt i will say but yeah. Um, I was able oh, to just poor do. poor you, Austin. I know, I know, I know, <laughs> I know. Um, but I just finished doing um, a play, uh, a Sam Shepard play called True West. And um, yeah. it, it basically took up the bulk of my time for the last two months. I wasn't doing too much academic-y stuff um, except for the little bits that I had to do. And, and so, but I was like 99% just focused on this play. And one of the things that was so amazing is that it was, it was, we were able to have time for each other and just like with mm-hmm. all theater you're always because you're in a room with human beings for you know 8 hours or whatever it is and then when you're doing a show you're in this space with these people and so we did have it felt like i was in like a suspended time capsule or something like that because mm-hmm. i do feel that i had the time to love people and there was there's just so much fucking love where it's like you're creating something that you care about together and and so there is a there is something that is so extremely important about that. And I'm so thankful because I, I do think I was able to get some kind of time to be a, a human. And and you just said that a, a minute ago about being a human. And I was like, fuck, you know, I, it was a very humanizing experience. I, I, was, ah. I was unplugged mostly from the pressures of social media, from academia, from a lot of these other things. And I was able to just be with people. And as yeah. cheesy and as simple as that sounds, it was so fucking great, you know?
0: It's like... The only fucking thing that matters, That's right? That's it. Just it like, is right. You know, just right, like this a, yeah.
2: And this is something we've been talking about that I wanted to ask you about, Sarah. So I don't know if you choose the um, the headline or you chose the headline for the in these times um, article that I did was basically not. it was it was the I conclusion of your book, right? Yeah. Um. So the the title was against loving your job, and okay. I actually really appreciated that because it could have been against loving work, right? Yes. But instead, it was your job. And so you know I wouldn't call myself neither Austin and I really are like fun like um, doctrinaire Marxists yeah but we probably would both be enough of um, affiliated with Marx to say that constitutive of our species being is productive work in some way and so when Austin's talking about doing his play or whatever other sort of social unions that we're part of that's work but it's yeah. not a job
3: yeah
2: and so that mm. there does there seem to me to be a need for specifying this distinction between work generally which can be extremely meaningful and illuminating and constitutive of your life and of your interactions with others and the way in which you impact others and they impact you basically what be all one out of life and jobs which can be part of that or they cannot be part of that depending upon yeah. social conditions and it seems like i was even thinking about this morning because um there's been this whole thing about uh, Emma Stone doing this new Cruella de Vil. Oh God, yes!
3: yes. Film, which is
2: basically <laughs> female girl boss Joker, is what mm. it looks like.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, and then people freaking out about criticisms of it and, and everything, and mm. and it's just like you know, everybody wants these social unions so bad, like the kind of Austin's talking about. The he gets through doing yeah. theater, um, and there's such a lack of those things, both in like labor unions, which you know you talk about a lot as being importantly yeah. part of socialization because social unions are are the sort of labor unions excuse me are part of where you learn how to be engaged politically for most Mm. of american history that was like the prime side of that happening it doesn't really happen so much in the family right um but since we're so lacking in both labor unions and social unions generally and especially now over the last year where we're just we just completely erased those from our lives it's like conservatives only have a few sort of social unions left to engage in um, maybe it's religion or whatever, right? Or yeah, or, or conspiracy <laughs> theories, basically, online. It's their social union. Oh, God, union. yeah,
0: I know, right? But the liberals,
2: on. the liberal version of that um, structurally seems to be like fandom culture. So it's like Disney is my <laughs> social union. Being a fan of Disney is my social union. Oh and so I'll, I'll fight to the death to defend it against any detractors, right? Yeah. And part of that's you know kind of pathetic, but also part of it's like, I get it. I want a social union To be a part of to define meaning in life and if nothing is on offer Mm because either everything's been destroyed by not being profitable enough or in the last year we've all been on lockdown or many of us have been on lockdown so those things are all gone if all you have left is you know disney culture or marvel culture you know whatever anime culture there was the big big
1: fight this week on twitter about the gatekeeping of anime so that's another one Mm, gamer culture yeah
2: it's something it gives you some sort of socialization
0: yeah, I mean, it's really it's interesting, right? Because like especially now you've got sort of social media in a variety of ways. So you you know like you can have everything from like active engagement with it, which is like people who like write fan fiction and like make fan art and stuff like that where you're like producing a thing that you mm-hmm. share with other people and that that ends up sort of having like some sort of, you know, um, I don't want to say productive but like creative relationship with the thing. Um, Or at its worst, you just get people who like freak out because, you know, there's a black Captain America because (laughs) like they can't imagine Captain America being anything other than like this, you know, old dead white guy that was drawn by Jack Kirby whenever the hell it was, right? Like you can't imagine outside, you certainly can't have a creative relationship with it because you only can like exist to defend it. Um, And all of that is sort of, mashed up in these fan cultures, right? Where like on the one hand you have people who like take extreme liberties with like slash fiction and shit. Um and on the other hand you have like, you cannot possibly make Captain America not white. <laughs> um, he must be played by Chris Evans till Chris Evans dies or whatever it is. Yeah. Um and poor Chris Evans. <laughs> <laughs> like you know, the 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 like projection or like actually just like using this as an inspiration. Um and they strike me as like really different things, right? Mm. Um, and like I don't know. I feel like the thing that like the sort of thing that I love about the internet is is frankly like weird fan videos and stuff like that where you're just kind of like, "Oh my god, somebody just spent hours of their life making People this care. Stuff.
1: But that's what we're looking <laughs> really at is like, "Oh my god, somebody cares." Video, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, about Harry Potter. Whatever it is, right? right? And then on the other hand, you have like, you know, J.K. Rowling like dropping like, you know, Hagrid is asexual, like once a year or whatever. She's like, here's a thing that I could have written, but didn't, because I'm actually not that interesting, um, you know. And it's it's the weird, like the controlling of the canon versus like using this as a jumping off place for people to think about interesting things, mm. um, or like different ways you can interact with media, um, art, maybe if we're gonna be wanky about it. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and like we all need that shit, but I don't know if we need it to be work. Mm. Um, in fact, I think we don't need it to be work. It would be better if it wasn't. But, like, I don't know. I was thinking about this because I just I did a book talk earlier today. Um, God, like two hours ago.
1: Oh, this time. <laughs> no, <laughs> and... more, no more book talk. No more. Just free-flowing. Free um, yeah. <laughs> no, but
0: we were talking about art because I had um, two women who were in my book who are both artists and um, talking with me. And we were talking – I was talking about the um, – the thing that I knew about with the WPA, right, the Works Progress Administration, all the arts program, was that they paid for, like, Dorothea Lange to, like, take beautiful photos of, you know, Dust Bowl migrants and stuff. And, like, they paid for artists to paint murals on the walls of public buildings and all of that, right? I knew about that. It's great. Love it. Um, the thing I didn't know about was, like, the construction of all these of hundreds of, like, community art centers hmm. where, like, everybody in the community could go, like, take an art class. Mm. And, like, that's the thing that I think is the the interesting part. And in it. it's, like, how do we stimulate, like, that? Not just the part where, like, a few people get to be professional artists. Yeah. But, like, the part where, like, everybody gets to do this shit. The same thing, right? Like, what I was saying about, like, the, you know, computer programmers still should take a fucking philosophy class. Mm. It's great. You should do that. You know, that we should actually build all these things back into the culture. So, like, you know, not everybody will want to be a philosophy professor there is right. a limited probably supply of people who want to do that but you know it, it to get marks again right like every cook can govern and and we should all you know do whatever it was and then criticize after dinner like mm. this this idea that we have to like draw these firm lines between like this is who we this person is and this is what this person does and they don't do anything else rather than actually we have all these all of these different capacities within us and we might want to use them at different levels.
1: So then are, right? you, are you an advocate for like a universal basic income?
0: Um, Sure. I mean, I think the way we get a basic income, it's not going to be like Andrew Yang becoming mayor of New York. I just got another stupid press release from Andrew Yang who is now running for mayor of New York.
1: <laughs> I hear he's winning um, in the polls pretty substantially too. So
0: Christ, we're doomed. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, that's because nobody who actually is qualified for the job wants it right now. Yeah. Because Bill de Blasio has, like, massively cocked it up, so nobody wants to, like, follow in his footsteps and try to unfuck it. Um, so, like, yeah, this is New York. I know I know all of these people way too well because I've been covering New York City politics for 12 years now. <laughs> so I know all the people who, like, I thought would be running for mayor right now, and none of them are doing it.
2: Hmm. So I mean, can you imagine being the kind of person who would want to be mayor of New York?
0: I mean, I do not have that phenomenal an ego. <laughs> <laughs> but nor do I want to work that hard things but like so basic income as a an idea is wonderful right it's great but like the thing is that in order to get any policy like that that would actually make life better for working people is gonna actually have to come from like a movement of working people and not from like tech bros and andrew yang who basically right. is a tech bro um i just learned the other day actually that andrew yang's like math hats are supposed to stand for make america think again and then like Oh my watching God. His campaign. I'm like, dude, you don't think clearly. So, like,
1: yeah. Um, yeah, that's the, 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 the kind of libertarian <laughs> advocacy of basic income is cool. Let's just give people a thousand bucks so that they can be like placid consumers and then we'll dismantle right. every other Everything uh, piece. Else. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Every other infrastructure spending yeah. that we can. And right? so,
0: right. No, that sucks. Right. I want like community art centers and. Yeah. Healthcare, I would like healthcare. Um, And all of those things. And then also you give everybody, you know, a basic income. And you're like, cool. So here's the thing that, again, like that not everybody is going to want to take a philosophy class, maybe. Not everybody's going to want to buy art supplies. You know, I would probably buy a lot of real, I have like a real affinity for like schmancy notebooks even though my handwriting is terrible and I can't even read half the time what I write in my fancy notebooks. <laughs> I If I got, you know, $2,000 a month to spend on whatever the hell I wanted and all my other needs were taken up, like I would definitely just buy a shit ton of really nice notebooks and pens. <laughs> and that is not a thing that like everybody does not need an allotment of notebooks and pens because most people don't care about this the way I do. That's yeah. fine. <laughs> um, you know, but like the, the basic needs have to be covered first. And then eh, this is some like fucking Maslow's hierarchy of needs shit, right? Like Mm. we actually can't think about having time to make art unless we know that everything else is taken care of.
3: Mm. And
0: when that processor is humming in the background, it's really hard to create anything. And like, you know, pandemic life means we've all got the death buzzer, you know, humming in the background. But like Mm. when you're broke and trying to figure out how you're going to pay the bills next it's really hard to, like, write the great American novel because you're literally like, how am I going to eat, though?
1: Yeah, Troy, help me think through this here because I'm trying to piece this together, but Sarah is saying some stuff that's making me think about, like, there's an irony that, that I'm trying to kind of identify. So, like, the the, the foundations, if you will, of, like, um, Western democracy are oftentimes kind of attributed to coming out of, you know, ancient Greece, right? And what is one of the things right. that, that conditions the capacity for ancient Greek philosophers to be able to engage in this type of philosophical speculation to write the Republic, right? Um, well, it's that, that they weren't Slavery. constantly... in.
0: Im- yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, yeah, okay. Say. Slavery. <laughs> fucking <laughs> slaves, right? Yeah. Um,
3: Somebody else it,
1: doing all the work. That's right. They were freed up, you know? They weren't yeah. engaged in the wars. They had free time. And so they were allowed yeah. to sit around and navel gaze a little bit, right? Um yeah. So it's like the foundations of the very system that, that that sort of has benefited many people and then obviously has kind of transformed the world um, detrimentally for others that we then are trying to like uphold or strengthen or better required required some sort of um, time for reflection. So it seems that there's a weird irony here that that what then is required, if we're going to even have, quote, progress, whatever the fuck that might mean, um, it, it, it necessitates something like leisure time. It necessitates something like time for reflection. Um, does this make sense you see kind of where i'm getting there's some sort of tension here that i'm kind of i don't know tapping into i just don't know how to formulate it
0: yeah no exactly we actually need to have time for going back to being bored right but like beyond just being bored actually like being bored but all of your needs are taken care of so like right now if you're an uber driver you might be bored a lot of the time while you're waiting for your little app to ping to give you another ride Mm -hmm. but you are not like actually free to sit there and you know make a work of art while you're sitting in your car waiting for your you know your next uber ride to come because you're sitting there stressing about if i don't get another fare tonight i can't pay the rent tomorrow yeah like the difference between sort of you know having time where your needs are met and having time that you are trying desperately to fill with the work that's going to pay the rent Mm. are two really different things like
3: Mm.
2: and that's the thing right is you know we're talking about, I think, two different but complementary uh, factors of what might be considered like the good society that we're sort of uh, utopianly idealizing. Right. One are these necessary conditions, which are having enough time um, to engage in production that we actually care about that's meaningful, um, not having to worry about our health, not having to worry about how we're going to feed ourselves and our family, and those right. are all like important social welfare stuff, right? And those are necessary conditions, right? We have right. to have those things. If you don't have those things, you can't have anything like a good society or or, or, or predicting like a good life for yourself and your loved ones. Mm-hmm. But then also there's like the community arts center stuff, which right. is not, it's not like the absence of something, the absence of anxiety or worry right. or whatever. It's, it's the actual existence, presence and activity of potential good lives, good meaningful right. lives for people. and. One thing I worry a bit about is obviously I'm for all the social welfare theory stuff and we need to have that stuff as necessary. But then there is kind of like a, if there was a, an angel on the shoulder of the tech bros, it's <laughs> that kind of thing. Like we're when, when Andrew Yang says, make America think again, if I'm going to give him the best, the best most um, sort of optimistic interpretation, it's basically what that means, just obey what um, the tech sector says, right? Mm-hmm. We'll do the thinking, you just obey, Right. Because we'll, we'll figure it out for you, right? It's like technocracy in its most idealized form. Exactly. Hmm. Which could end up with the kind of thing where we actually have a functioning welfare state, and um, <laughs> which we don't have anything close to, right? right? And so we do have a little bit more free time and we do have um, you know, universal health care or something like that. But then none of that positive stuff like the community art centers exist right. or libraries or whatever community organizations.
0: Universities, and anything.
2: And universities, mm-hmm. yeah, the infrastructure for those things just goes away because they're not considered to be productive anymore. They're right. a waste of money or whatever. And so we're all healthy and we don't have to work um, all day, every day, but then we're all at home on our couches, zooming each other, watching Netflix and playing video games.
3: Right.
2: <laughs> um, those things are nice and they're good escapes, right? But those probably aren't going to replace the kind of meaningful activity that actually makes us want to get out of bed in the morning um, at the end of the day. So,
0: yeah, it's it's the difference between that, that, you know, that pop culture that you just consume and then defend it on a Twitter thread forever and the pop culture that makes you make your own shit. Mm.
2: Mm. Yeah, the, s- the symptom of you, people you know, defending Disney to their death, right, has to be a signal that this these people and everybody wants to invest in things, and right. If all they have available to them is, you know, Disney, then they're going to go to bat for that shit, or they're going to go to bat for their chosen conspiracy theory or whatever it is. So it's a symptom of a much larger Your problem, which people guy. don't have anywhere to invest their meaningful activity. Hmm.
0: Yeah.
1: Hmm. yeah. 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 I, I guess what I wonder, does this leave us just then with um, a sort of, like, loosely uh, characterized, like, anarchist type of theory that's like well what we need to do is just build like our little autonomous zones or find those interstitial spaces where we can because you do talk that's one of the things you do talk about right like uh, reclaiming certain spaces with like occupy and things like that which mm-hmm. um, were those sites of freedom that were reclaimed and then I can just hear my, my more like militant Marxist friends being like ah but that's not sufficient enough we actually have to take power you know we have to have the state so it's like I know obviously I think all of us here would say no it's like a both and issue it's not an yes. either or issue so that yep. it's like like, how do we start it, right? Is it like, okay, so we we build up, uh, we invest as much as we can in um, the community spaces when we do have our time, like me being able to do theater or, or you being able to be involved with the community arts center, um, you know, uh, whatever it is that we're able to do. And then simultaneously, we have to elect leaders that are going to be those who are going to – uh, impose like top down things like like what the fuck is the strategy to actually like practically <laughs> you know to actually practically yeah, start I mean, dissolving literally, things the, huh?
0: the community art centers and the WPA and all of that started um, I mean it what it really you know what really pushed those into existence was like the communist party was organizing artists there was hmm. an actual artist union that was formed out of the communist party's John Reed clubs wow. and they raised a bunch of hell once FDR got into office and was going to do something about it because you know Herbert Hoover wasn't going to do anything so it is that combination of things, right? You have the radicals on the ground saying like, okay, what do we want to do? And, you know, you had a bunch of, you know, artists becoming communists. I'm shocked, right? Totally shocked. <laughs> <laughs> I'm totally shocked that that was a big draw. And yeah, but then they are like, okay, how do, we, how do we organize with this? How do we in this moment say like artists, art is also work and therefore it should be part of the, these, you know, New Deal programs that are, are creating jobs for people. Um, but also what else do we want? And, yeah, so, like, that, that actual organizing that came alongside, like, all the other organizing the Communist Party was doing of, of organizing, you know, rent strikes and, um, you know, eviction defenses and unemployed people and all of this other shit that was going on, um, that was one of the demands. But it was one that, that, you know, for whatever reason, combination of militant organizing and interest from some actual people at the top who ended up in these jobs... Um, Came into being for a little while, and then of course it all gets dismantled because we had to go to war. Um, and you know, like fighting Hitler was probably a good thing to do. Like I'm Jewish enough to really be a fan of <laughs> having fucking beaten Hitler. It's great, but like you know, but it also does sort of lead to the dismantling of all of these the better New Deal programs in a lot of ways. Mm. Uh, anyway, uh-huh. so the last
1: thing you're exhausted. We're gonna let you go. Um, the last thing I guess I'll ask then is is what do you what do you see in terms of like On the horizon in the United States at the moment that is optimistic, like the Bernie, the Bernie campaign is, is gone. Yikes. Um, Like, like what, what is, what is, is there a Phoenix that is rising out of the ashes of what was a lot of exuberance and hope over the last few years?
0: Um, So there's a bunch of stuff that's hopeful. I mean, right now I've been depressed about Texas all day. But, like, Mm. there is a whole bunch of organizing that's happening right now that's really exciting. Um, If these workers win a union at the friggin' Amazon warehouse in Alabama, that will be huge. Mm. Um, I was just talking to some folks from the worker center in Minneapolis that first got Amazon to come to the bargaining table uh, and this was, you know, a group of Somali immigrant workers who did mostly not speak English and Amazon had recruited them all to come work there because they figured that they would be, like, grateful to have a job. And instead they were like, excuse me, this is Ramadan and we are tired and you need to give us breaks. We mm-hmm. need prayer time. And they won over these things that most people would, you know, sort of consider, like, not all that um important for labor organizing which is bullshit mm. um so you know i find that super hopeful um i think that we're even talking about some of these policies is amazing right like the government did in fact i mean i haven't gotten my next my second check and biden hasn't gotten her out of the third ones yet but the government did figure out how to send pretty much everyone in the country a 1200 hundred dollar check at some point and a lot mm-hmm. of people have gotten the second 600 dollars. so just not me
1: yeah, and like shitloads that, but, of, you know. of like topped up money on unemployment insurance. You know, the under the yeah, it, like, even, even it was seen... it was Trump, but the six hundred bucks a week under the CARES Act yeah. and then that was extended with an extra three hundred and now the Biden administration is talking about an extra four hundred. The fact that the government is like, Oh, guess what? We can actually um, support people, people and money. we can actually just give money away, yeah, is is kind of a game changer, I feel like. I like I wonder yeah. what's gonna happen, like if the economic situation continues apace, um, and we're in 2022, and and they're still giving out money for like extra money for unemployment insurance, and they're still like um, injecting money into small business and things like that, are we? Are they ever going to be able to be like, you know what? We're actually going to cut off this this flow now. We're not going to do this anymore. Like, no more of this is going to happen. Or are people are going to be like, no, 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 we actually like that. Like, we got to figure out a long term strategy for money being kind of given to people. Like, I wonder if this is kind of, in a way. Um, not shooting themselves in the foot, but if they're kind of, um, kind of, They've opening up the door, they oh, might yes. not be able to close. Right? Exactly, well, we'll that's exactly it. That it. That's like, exactly less it. shooting. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I wonder. I don't know.
2: Yeah, so. which side of the um, we need to be responsible and cut off the public from the uh, the government's teats. Or continue giving money to people because it'll help us win elections. Which side do you think mainstream Democrats will be on when it comes down to that debate? I mean,
0: I. Um, you know what's interesting, though. Actually, here's another thing: is that like Chuck Schumer is scared shitless that AOC is going to run against him <laughs> for the Senate, yeah. and so he's actually like, "Oh, we should do something with this. Um, we should we should give people more money. We should pass $15 an hour minimum wage. Please don't run against me, much more popular, young, charming woman that everyone loves." <laughs>
1: Right, right, right. So
0: you know, I'm I'm enjoying. I'm enjoying like Chuck Schumer in panic mode. It's great fun. Um, again, I spent way too much time with the you know, freaking New York politicians. I know them way too well.
1: <laughs> well, that's good because I don't. So I'm I'm glad I get to learn about these uh, internal anxieties. No, that you're they're... not. You
0: don't <laughs> want to know about New York politicians. They're the worst. But yeah, no, Chuck Schumer is definitely like hustling a little bit. Mm. Um, you know, Bernie is not going to be president, but he is the chairman of the Senate Bud- Budget Committee. Which is huge. That doesn't suck. Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah, because everything is going to have to go through budget reconciliation in order to pass, which means it's got to go through, you know, Chairman mm. Bernie. Yeah. Um, let the Maoist jokes commence. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: love it. Um, right? Yeah, Troy, did you have any any last things to say before we let Sarah go have her whiskey? yeah
2: <laughs> No, I think this has been this has been really great. And hopefully a break for you, Sarah, from formalized uh, discussions of of your book.
0: Yes, we are planning the communist revolution of community art centers.
1: Absolutely. I'm here
0: and for it. I think we should revive the John Reed clubs.
1: I'm 100% game. All of us weird
0: creative people.
1: Yes, let's do it. And uh, if I could, if we were in person, I would reach over and give you a fist bump. So this is me Shh. just reaching my fist hand out to the, the camera. Yep, okay. <laughs> Um, do you want to go ahead and tell people where they can find you on the internet?
0: Oh, yeah, I am on the internet. I am on Twitter at Sarah L. Jaffe, Sarah with an H, Jaffe with one E, and uh, you can find my website at workwontloveyouback.org.
1: Is there a better place to purchase your book if people are going to get it? Like, is there a company that you don't want people? There is a
0: link. No, no. I mean, buy it from your local bookstore. We love local bookstores and want them to survive the pandemic. And um, if you cannot do that, you can buy it through the link on my website, which will take you to bookshop.org, which also kicks some money to local bookstores. So, um, yeah.
1: Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you. Thanks, Sarah.
2: Thanks so much to Sarah Jaffe for coming on. That was a great little conversation. And I'm hopeful that we gave her a break from the book tour atmosphere and just allow some some bullshitting with impunity like we do on this podcast, right?
1: Yeah. Next time, uh, Sarah, we'll bust out the whiskey in the middle of the podcast. But uh, yes, definitely.
2: So you know what we got to do before we end this, this episode though, Austin?
1: I'm ready. What's up? We
2: got to do that sticky leaves. Okay. So for those unaware, the Sticky Leaves segment is where one of us talks about whatever it is that's granting us meaning in a potentially meaningless
1: universe. So Austin, what's doing it for you this week? So uh, on the Wisecrack podcast, Show Me the Meaning that I host, we are doing a John Carpenter retrospective. And we're going through, I mean, we're not going to go through all of his filmography, but we're going to do a month of John Carpenter. And we started with... Big Trouble in Little China. Oh, when was God. the last time you saw that movie? I don't think I've ever seen that movie. I know of it, obviously. bro. Bro, you have to see this movie. Okay, (laughs) when I was a child, it was like one of my favorite movies ever, right? And I don't know why. I mean, I don't even think I fucking understood it. But it came out in like 87, right? So uh, I was like – it was before I probably even could form memories that I watched this damn thing. But anyway, I loved Big Trouble in Little China. I used to watch it all the time. And um, I was afraid going into it when we decided to watch it because, you know, I've had a couple of – nostalgic films get ruined for me over the past few years. Like, Three Amigos is one that comes to mind. I used to love Three Amigos when I was a kid, and I recently revisited it a couple years ago, and I was like, oh, man, it just doesn't hold up, you know? And I hate when that happens, you know? There's certain movies that I just don't want to revisit, like Mannequin. I fucking love Mannequin, and I don't want to rewatch it because I'm so scared that it's going to suck because I (laughs) love it so much from when I was a kid. Or Club Paradise is another one of those movies, a Robin Williams movie that I fucking used to love with Eugene Levy and Rick Moranis and... Twiggy is in it and all kinds of other people. And I'm afraid that it's going to be ruined by revisiting it. So I just want to preserve my happy memories. So I went in with a little bit of trepidation. And upon viewing it, bro, it's so good. It's so good. And it just makes me bemoan the state of the film industry at the moment because I'm like, why? We just don't make films like this, you know? And part of it is I understand. I mean, even even Big Trouble in Little China was a box office flop when it came out. It wasn't until it kind of became a cult classic that it started to make any sort of revenue it was such a flop actually that it's what le- it caused john carpenter to leave hollywood <laughs> like he left the hollywood studio system after this because he was like fuck it like um one it came out at the same time as alien so the promotion got screwed because it couldn't compete with alien and two it's like this weird genre mishmash of horror and horror and um, like Hong Kong films at the time, and kung fu movies, and supernatural, sci-fi, and comedy, and it's like, how do you how do you market a film like that, right? Like, how do you get people interested? Even the trailer doesn't fucking do justice to what this film is. But basically, it's Kurt Russell, Kim Cattrall, and a host of others. And Kurt Russell is charming as fuck in it, and he's doing like a John Wayne impersonation. So there's like a there's like a strange Western structure. I guess the original draft was actually set in like the West in uh, the 1880s or something like that, uh, end of the 19th century. But they – it went through like massive revisions and then it got updated and then it took place in you know contemporary at the time Chinatown in San Francisco. Um, but it still has that, that kind of Western – structure where it's like, Kurt Russell is a long-distance truck driver, so he's kind of like the cowboy, the man of violence, who comes from the wild, right? He comes from the road, and he comes into town, and he has to, like, be engaged in this act of violence to restore balance in civilization or some shit like that, and then, of course, at the end, he leaves, right? Um, Because he can't stay in the town again. It's very Shane, Searchers, kind of like it has that standard classical Western structure, but it's also got this really interesting exploration of cultures, um, and so as I was watching this, one of the things that I did wonder, you know, as any good soy boy would wonder, I was wondering if it was problematic from the perspective of like if there was an Orientalism, like a, a sort of um, interesting and uh, but but like mystifying and maybe patronizing and um, spiritualizing angle on uh, on the East, right? And if that wasn't maybe in some ways problematic. And so I started Googling and, and reading some articles on like Orientalism and Big Trouble in Little China. And sure, those there's there's some definite elements there. But I read a really interesting one um, by, uh, by a Chinese-American writer uh, who was writing about how actually um, there's something interesting about this film. Because what this film does is it explores the kind of like the forward-facing or the front-facing efforts of Chinese-Americans who like put up their like – kitsch decorations to uh, to have their businesses um, in, in the middle of a city so that they can make money. And then there's like an inside community, like an internal community where people are speaking Cantonese and Mandarin and whatnot, and um, that this film actually does a really good job of, one, kind of showing that, that there is that forward-facing, outward-facing world, but then also the inward community. And then simultaneously, it's also a real love letter and an homage to um, certain Hong Kong cinema that was being made at that time. So... Um, you know, there's there's a lot of kind of like really interesting themes, I think, to explore. And then one of the things that the article kind of argued was that in a, in a typical kind of like Orientalist film, what you end up getting is that kind of there's like a white savior or like somehow the white person comes in and, and does something um, – that uh that illuminates if you will the the hidden world of the east but that's not what happens with kurt russell kurt russell's just a buffoon he constantly (laughs) he constantly comes in like i'm gonna save the day but he doesn't and then he'll come back into the to the group of people that are all mostly like um chinese american actors and he'll be like okay well what do we do now and they all kind of look at him like whatever dude but he has this bravado about him as though he's the hero but really he's not the hero like the 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 culmination in like the big fight scene, he actually gets knocked out by uh, um, some rock from the ceiling because he shoots his gun in the air and it falls down and it hits him in the head and he gets knocked out. So he's not even involved in the main fight scene, right? So like constantly they're taking the piss out of this supposed white savior who comes in. So there's some really interesting ways that it kind of confounds and maybe problematizes, if you will, um, what would be an otherwise much more simple uh, way of reading this film, and so I thought that that essay was really quite interesting. But even just beyond that, the film is—it's fun, it's funny, it's interesting. The pacing is great. The the practical effects are wonderful. Um, and it just made me. There was, this is gonna sound so weird because like, how do you quantify this? And you can't really. And it's just this intuition I have, and maybe it's just because it made me feel good. But I felt the joy, in the film as an artistic product, right? Like, I felt that the making of the film was joyous, and I don't always get that. When I watch an Avengers film, I don't feel like it's joyous. I feel like it's a commercial product, right? And maybe this is some of my biases that are clouding my ability to understand, you know, the producers and the, the creatives in making a film like Avengers. Maybe there really is a passion and a love that is there, that is infused, but it feels like it gets stifled, you know? When I get that finished product, there's something that is sterile, there's something that is stale about, maybe it's because it's all just CGI'd, brand-driven, commercially- corporate structured storytelling and action figures and I know that it's a part of a franchise that's just part of this multi-billion dollar industry machine and so maybe that's why maybe it does get sapped but you don't get that in a film like Big Trouble in Little China I felt the joy I felt it in every single flourish that was on the screen and I just think it's a great film and I just I I wish we made more movies like that Um, I know that there's a lot of great indie film out there that is being made, not just in the English-speaking world, but globally. Um, but unfortunately, a lot of it gets pushed to the margins, which is why I, you know, love to try to snuff things out when I can at uh, film festivals or on Mubi or, you know, following you know obscure film blog, Twitter feeds or websites or whatever that can introduce me to those things. But yeah, man, when you watch a good film like that, it just I don't know. There's it, it makes you think like, oh, fuck, why, why can't we make more like that? Why can't we make more stuff like that? We should be able to make more stuff like that. As matter of fact, that's the only stuff we should make, you know? <laughs> so it's great. Yeah, I'm going to have to watch this
2: because obviously already I've known about it forever. But um, And John Carpenter is one of those directors, dude, where what are your general feelings on, on Carpenter's work?
1: Oh, he's hit or miss. Like I just watched The Fog last night, which is the film we're going to be talking about this week. And <sighs> like... I get the the Carpenter aesthetic is cool, but like this story, I found it kind of boring. And it's supposed to be like this myth and this allegory about America. And I guess there's stuff there, but it just didn't do it for me. It wasn't very scary. It wasn't very eerie. It just didn't quite work for me. Whereas like Halloween works for me, Big Trouble in Little China works for me, The Thing works for me, you know, um, Prince of Darkness works for me. Like there's certain ones that that really just work for me, and then. Maybe some that just don't.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I have the same reaction. You know, my favorite horror movie of all time is The Thing, John Carpenter's version. Mm. Um, I just think it's the most brilliant use of, of horror and just like the idea of of ultimate evil being this thing you can't recognize, right? And that's potentialized in everybody. It, mm. it, it gives you this unnerving sense of dread that I think many movies have tried to copy since then and i don't think i've ever quite reached that and then the apotheosis of like the horror element and the practical effects to do with the creature it builds to this great climax it's just as frightening as any movie could possibly be i think um there's a great balance of like the the gory horrible stuff with the just like anxiety and dread when everything's seemingly normal um i just i love that movie so much and then, like, he's done some great ones, too. Like, Escape from New York is a classic, as ridiculous as it is. Uh, they Live hmm. is also ridiculous, but a classic. Um, but then, yeah, like, uh, and Halloween's obviously a classic, although I don't have the same affinity that some people do with that movie. Um, but then some, he's got some, some shitty movies, dude, <laughs> <laughs> too. So it's it's a tough one with, with Carpenter. You want to think of him as the auteur, but maybe you do have to have a little bit of that just, like, shittiness in you um, to make great films but- in that genre.
1: I still want to live in a world where the fog exists though. Like that's the thing. I didn't love it, but I still want to live in a world where that film is there. I don't want to live in a world where some of the shit that's pumped out on Netflix exists, (laughs) you know, (laughs) like, like get rid of 90% of that crap. Um, like I haven't seen the film, but I have just read some reviews and I've read some people that I trust their opinions on film quite a lot. Talk about Sia's film music. Like, it just sounds like an awful film from what I can tell, right? Like, if it is as awful as everyone says, then I want to live in a world where that film doesn't exist. Like, I don't even want it to have existed. Like, it would just be better that it wasn't there, right? Like, those actors are talented. Those people are talented. Let's put their use in something something more interesting, something better, right? Um, so... I don't know. I, I still want to live in a world where films like The Fog exist, even if it doesn't fully work for me, right? There's a lot of films like that that don't fully work for me, and I still I still think I'm like, ah, but I'm, I'm glad they're there, right? Like a film like Tenet. Tenet is a film that I don't love. It doesn't work for me, but I'm still glad that it's there, right? Like there's something, there's enough there there for me to be like, oh, I'm still glad I live in a world where fucking this dude is blowing up a 747. Like, I'm cool. I'm cool with that. Like, I'm cool with what he does in that film. And the exploration of, like, going backwards. Like, there's something interesting in that. Right? I so will I'm glad say, that that exists.
2: Yeah, I watched Tenet yeah. last week. And I don't want to go on a long dietary about this. But uh, that's got to be the most Nolan movie that Nolan ever Noland. Uh It just had <laughs> yeah. the worst Nolan stereotypes about characters and dialogue. With the best of Nolan's ridiculously complex and convoluted plots and stuff and there's yeah. a point where i just started laughing at everything that was happening in that movie because it was just so null and, and i'm worried about what his next film is going to be because it's not going to be as entertaining as that film was if he keeps going down this completely unhinged i will no one will tell me that this is wrong or that i need to do anything different <laughs> type of road
1: yeah i don't know if he's going to keep getting blank checks from warner um so we'll see but yeah, um, but no, like, like I I I agree with you. It is it is the the most Nolan film that Nolan has ever Nolan, and um, and I don't think it's a good movie, but I'm glad it exists. Oh, like I, I
2: had a super fun time watching it, but yeah, it's not it's yeah. not a great movie, certainly.
1: Yeah, like I lit. I was kind of like you. I was laughing in the theater when I saw it, and uh, Anita and I were literally laughing. We were like, <laughs> oh my god! And we turned to each other at one point, and we're like. I'm like, I'm currently working on a project on the philosophy of time. So I'm spending a lot of time thinking about time. And we turn to each other and she's like, do you understand what's going on? I'm like, I have no fucking clue what's going on right now. (laughs) I was like, what the fuck is happening? And I couldn't understand some of the dialogue. But here's the thing. It's still worthy of existing
2: it's whereas trying a something lot of films, right it's at least it's, trying yeah. something that you can admit is a noble try even if it doesn't completely succeed as carpenters films always do right they're always trying exactly. something. exactly whereas like what you talk yeah. a lot about is just like the fact that films are often now just assets for production companies right they're churned out without anybody actually having uh any sort of a vision of what they're trying to do behind it right it's just a vehicle for something else and this is the kind of thing that scorsese's talking about a lot recently. Right with um, mm. films just being content rather than art. I think the important part of that is just the fact that you know, films, you can you can sort of deal with the fact that a film is not good if you can see where the people making it, the whole group of people making it, were trying to do something that they may have not fully succeeded at, right? You can have a discussion mm. about that and it's productive and that's a good thing that exists in that world. But the films as pure and mere content don't do that and that's just depressing.
1: Totally depressing. So... Go check out some John Carpenter shit. Even when he misses, um, it's still a worthy miss. So, And even if you watch it, like someone on Twitter hit me up and was like, oh, I, I shut off the fog. I didn't even get to watch the whole thing. Even the, the 45 minutes or whatever that they watched the film, um, there's probably something interesting in that because the aesthetic is super interesting. It moves really mm-hmm. slow. There is something of value even in the failure and uh so yeah i would definitely check out some john carpenter films but especially just go and check out big trouble in little china because it just made me so happy i was giggling like a fucking teenager when i was watching it i kind of want to watch it again actually like it made me feel that good <laughs> and it was so fun dude kurt so, russell in the 80s like who is our contemporary bro, that? bro there is a... i don't think anybody has that kind of charisma yeah, because it's a charisma, but it's also like uh, he's mocking himself. So who? I mean, because you have people that mock themselves, like maybe like Franco. Nah, because I, I I don't like, think... like in pineapple like in Pineapple Express, but he doesn't have that same cool charisma, right? He's, yeah, I don't know.
2: Yeah, it, it's a weird combination of being that cool, but then also being willing to be self-effacing at the same time, right? And make fun of yourself. It's pretty rare. It's very it, rare. Let us know out there if there's a, a contemporary version of A's Carussel out there. There's got to be one Well, it's also the,
1: of. Well, it's also the state of comedy now. The state of comedy isn't the same, right? If, with the Apatow films that have dominated comedy, you don't really have those types of figures, right? Mm-hmm. You have, like, the stoners, and then you have, like, um, the Jonah Hill types, or you have, like, the, the Channing Tatum in 21 Jump Street types. I mean, the kind of—and uh, then in Bridesmaids, you don't really have, like— You don't have that type of figure. You've got the Melissa McCarthy or the Kristen Wiig character. You've got the Tina Fey type of characters. None of them have like that type of self-effacing charisma. I mean I wonder if it's actually – it would be a gender flip if we could look at somebody like – would someone like Tina Fey or Kristen Wiig have that, right, in some of the roles that they do? Like I don't know. I wonder. That would be interesting to think about. Yeah, I don't
2: know. Maybe. That's interesting.
1: Yeah. But it's just also the state of comedy is so different. Like when you watch Big Trouble in Little China – the comedies that they that they make now, they're not like that kind of comedy. They're mm. much more um raunchy, slapsticky, over the top, broy, kind of like the friendshippy. Whereas this is uh it's got like a God, what is it? It's self referential, but it's I don't know what it is. I I, I don't know how to categorize it, but yeah anyway, fucking check it out. Big trouble in Little China. it's fantastic.
2: I yeah, love it. yeah um, just the last thing is there's something about like action comedies now all have to be Tarantino knockoffs. It's like impossible to do an action comedy unless you're basically riffing on Tarantino and Tarantino's fantastic, but that's an unfortunate fact I feel about um, that genre of film because like uh some of the carpenter stuff uh, like they live I don't know if you could have a film like that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Which is like it's, – it's it's at the same time genuinely subversive and critical while also being completely
1: ridiculous. Yeah, because the action comedies, they're all just buddy comedies now, right? It's like uh, there was that taxi movie. Was it with Queen Latifah and Jimmy Fallon or whatever the fuck it was? And then it's like uh, – the fucking road trip one with Robert Downey Jr. and Zach Galifianakis. And like they, they can be fun and they can be funny. What was that one called? Due date or something like that. Um, like they can be fun and funny and that's great. Like they, they have their thing. You know, the hangover hangover movies are, are good, whatever. But th- there's just something different. There's a little je ne sais quoi uh, about something like uh, Carpenter's – like weird exploration and then maybe it just is the magic of kurt russell you know it like, might also be the magic I'm of cocaine trying. dude it was the 80s yeah it could be that <laughs> <laughs> you know maybe we're trying to we're trying to nail this down and really it's just this <laughs> ethereal magic of cocaine and kurt russell and a mullet like that's what it is <laughs> sorry it's just that simple okay uh let's go ahead and wrap up the episode there thank you so much for tuning in Definitely want to uh, give another shout to Sarah Jaffe for joining us. Thanks so much. Um, You can check out her article on burnout. We talked about that a couple episodes ago. Uh, You can definitely check out her book, Work Won't Love You Back. There's a link in the show notes where you can go to her site and where you can get that book. Follow her on Twitter. Um, uh, Also remember, we have the Discord that is up now. So if you want access to that, go to patreon.com slash dawn. Um, if you are already a patron, jump on there and start chatting. Um, we'll be sending out, uh, in, in Patreon, on the patron page, um, we'll actually put the little link so that you can click and, and you can join the, the Discord server for Owls at Dawn. Um, if you want access to bonus episodes and things like that, you can also go to patreon.com slash owls at Dawn. You can email us owls at Dawn podcast at gmail.com. Hit us up on Twitter, et etc. etc. Et I think that's pretty much it. Unless there's anything else you want to say, T. Roy. Just one more thing I can think of, dude. What's that? Das da da
2: Americans.